I want to put in a quick plug about what you just said. If there is a spouse or a legitimate person who could stay in the house, that's a whole nother, the dog just found the paper towel roll, a whole nother <laughs> layer of support that people don't realize is there, meaning spousal accommodation, spousal protection, spousal support, spend down. This happened yeah. to my uncle's widow. Hold on. Got to get the paper towel. <laughs> Can I call it? Do mm-hmm. I call it? Mm-hmm. Hi, Grandma. Yeah, right. So, do you want to play, Grandma? You want to play that part from Measure 9? Yep. Hello, fellowship sisters and siblings. Irreverent Rachel here. Today I'm going to continue last month's conversation with a shit sister who has been through the start, middle, and end of shit with one parent and is now back at the start with the others. We left off mid-discussion when my puppy, who is sniffing as I am recording this, punctuated his plea to go out by peeing all over the floor. Thank goodness for the industrial-sized rolls of brown paper towel we have kept in stock since COVID started. Before I reintroduce you to my friend Jen, let me just recap why this monthly podcast exists. After accumulating 10 years, and counting, of elder care intel, I decided to create my irreverent empire of insights, anecdotes, and audio, all found on my website, thisisgettingold.com, just add some dashes, in order to support the undertakings of you, my fellow shit sisters and siblings. The purpose of my monthly podcast is to provide empathy and education about the start, middle, and end of the elder care trenches, and to remind each other why we're all gathered here together, I start each episode with a grandma cameo. Today we're checking in on grandma after treating her to a fancy meal to celebrate her 87th birthday that included a surprise appearance by my sister and niece. As you'll hear from our conversation, Grandma is a bit more reflective and subdued these days as she takes stock of what we both assume must surely be the looming, if not imminent, end of her life. What is the date today, Mother? Today is the 31st. And when was your birthday? Actual birthday was on the 29th of July. And did we think you were going to live this long? No. <laughs> no way. Why not? Well, it just... My mother lived to be 82, and I thought that was really something. Mm-hmm. And, uh... How many siblings did your father have? There were six kids all together in his Jesus. family. Jesus. And this... six of my mother's family. What? Yep. Were they the oldest? Three girls and three boys on both sides. Where did they fall in the mix? My father was, let's see, Uncle Mark was the oldest. I think my father was, oh, after a a child who died. At what age? Around two, I think, the child died. What did he die of? I don't know, but his mother said she thought it had affected him because she was pregnant with him. And she was crying all the time. Hmm. So in what way did she think it affected the outcome? The 
that she alcoholism. Perceived. So that's what I wondered. Wow, so she's blaming his alcoholism well, on her being sad for the yeah, loss of his that's brother. That's what she was. That's interesting. So speaking of baby loss, mother, you have talked more about your firstborn child, your son Mark in the last few days and weeks than I have ever heard you talk about in my lifetime. And why do you think you've been thinking about him so much? I don't know, maybe because I'm coming to the point probably where I should be going. Your current wish for him is that we can bring him from where he was buried in Staten Island mm -hmm. to a place where we can all honor that he was part of the family and remember him. Is that true? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that seem awfully weird? Nope. It seems very, very <laughs> typical for the current moment. People treat each life in a much more precious way these days, Mother, than I think they did when you had babies. I said, I think, ba I think every life is treated much more preciously now than in your day, and my sister and I have always felt that it was kind of weird that baby Mark was out there in the middle of nowhere yeah, where nobody could honor him. So us trying to bring you and him together in a place where you can both be buried makes sense. And we can all have a plaque where we can remember that he was part of the family. Mm-hmm. I know it seems strange to you. Just, I didn't. I think... Wait, Mother. Huh? It seems strange to you. None of us have ever said that it seems strange to us. It makes a lot of sense to us. So why I does it... I think I just closed off. He was always... knew he was there. I think if I just could have felt there was a plot, I could have immediately put him in. And why did that not happen? Well, we didn't have one. We didn't... You know. So how did he end up going to the plot in Staten Island that he went to? Well, because your father and his father went down to have him buried. Mm -hmm. and, and for the service they did. And so he was buried there. And did they handle everything because that's what men did back in that era and or because you were a hot mess at the time? I was a mess. And you were on antidepressants, you said, right? Yeah. And am I understanding correctly, the other day you said that your mom was at the house, and then she left, mm -hmm. and that's when you found him in the crib. So if Daddy was in the Army, does that mean you were home alone? Oh, no. He yeah. was there. We lived together in an apartment. So you found him. On I your... found him in the crib. And then you would have called out to Daddy? Yes. I... I... Don't even want to think about what that must have been like for the two of you, Mother. That must have been awful. It was. Do you yeah. think it broke him and you in some way? The only thing that helped me eventually was to realize that the baby had not suffered. Mm -hmm. Did he die in his sleep, do you think? Died in his sleep. Did you both understand at the time what he had died of? No. So he The doctors had not made clear what was wrong. So what did you think when you found him dead? What did we you... didn't know because a lot of crib deaths, you know, mm -hmm. could occur. 
I did think, Mother, for many years, I wondered if you just didn't understand what crib death was, but it sounds like it was pretty clear that it was a staph infection, yeah. and you said another baby in that hospital also got a staph also infection. Also gave it. And people came to visit Kathy, Donna's girl. Mm -hmm. They came to visit us, and she went home and had caught staph. Wow. From holding the baby? Just being around it, I guess. Good God. You said the other day that you felt guilty about his death. Was that until you understood what happened, or do you still feel guilty? Well, I just felt guilty. How did it happen? Sounds like the hospital fucked up and the doctor fucked up. That sounds like how it happened. The other baby and, and Mark were both born on the same day. Mm-hmm. So it was something I believe in the delivery room. Mm-hmm. That might have been the same person yeah. delivering. Besides talking to Daddy's grandmother, his mother's mother, you said that she was the first person to look you in the eye and say, So, the baby died, mm -hmm. and she gave you space to talk about what happened. Other than Grandma Barnes, did you ever talk about the baby dying over your lifetime with anybody? Not much at all, because at that time, uh, there probably were some, you know, groups to help. Mm -hmm. But nobody had brought it up for me, and I didn't think of it. So sort of I was dealing on my own. Mm -hmm. What did Daddy do to deal same thing, I think, you know, he was, the two of us were just sort of dealing on our own. I feel you like... Know, at one point, we separated. You did? Yeah, just well, not for long. I went home to my mother's. Of course, we were feeling so jagged ourselves, you know. I think that baby death kind of broke our family forever. I think you got past it, and I don't think you ever did. I don't think it completely broke him. I think when the next child came along, he was happy with that. And, but, you know, he did have to deal at the time. Mm -hmm. So, Mom, <laughs> are you going to live to 88? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Nah. No, I think this is long you keep putting me under, Rachel, so I don't... I told you I reached out to your nurse practitioner to find out what happens when you drop dead. Yeah, so I know how to call the funeral home and I get you cremated. <laughs> she said if you have to do hospice, she can help with hospice. Oh, I said, I no, I just want one. her to drop dead. So. That's what she said. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. She said it was good to have a plan. Who did? Your nurse practitioner. Ah. She said it's always good to know do. how to handle the inevitable. Ah, you're terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you could choose how you go do you want to drop dead or do you want to do hospice or do you want to have to go to a nursing home I don't want to go to a nursing home I'm already in the home you're, well you're in a rest home mother it's like a day camp the woman asked me to do that painting group again oh yeah your modern says, painting we're going to sell it for millions yeah. when you're dead <laughs> what did she say I'm quiet but I, I have a good brain or something <laughs> I don't know what she's talking about. So we'll put that on your gravestone. Yeah. <laughs> she's quiet, but she had a good brain. <laughs> All right, Mom. So you're mm. gonna, are you going to die in your sleep? Are you going to drop dead? Or are you going to waste away slowly? 
I, in like a Dickensian era. I'm going to swat you. Alright, Mom. What do you want to say to everybody in case you die before the next podcast? It's been okay. <laughs> it has ups and downs like everybody else has. Uh -huh. But I've tried to think about why am I going longer. I think it's just genes. Mm. It's not it's, like some meaningful purpose you're put on this planet. Or is there some reason for Oh, it. that's deep. I think to help everybody out. What are you helping everybody with? Their heads. <laughs> <laughs> She's pointing her finger. But no one is helping me with mine. <laughs> so now it's time to return to our regularly scheduled broadcast. Oh shit, the dog's just peeing. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry about that. That was kind of funny. So let's see. We were digging into oh the probate that you went through, which I think would be really important for people to hear about. I talked to my elder care buddy, and he was like, "Dude, if there's no will, nobody's an executor. This shit's going to probate." I was like, "Of course." <laughs> so tell us, Jen, um, because this is a really big deal, and I'm not plugging for like, you must make your elder have a will because you can't. It's not about that. It's more that you must educate yourself on yeah. all the possible scenarios. And you don't have to do it in advance. It just means it'll unfold in a funky way. But this is one of those pieces, those what ifs, a very common what if that is worth understanding. So Jen, can you describe when somebody dies without a will, what happened next? Well, one thing, just like getting outside support to have the conversation, having a good attorney is really <laughs> key. Um, For you in that moment? Oh, yeah. I mean, just just like the, the funeral home, an estate attorney, this is what they do. Mm -hmm. And for them, it's commonplace. All of the craziest things you can imagine are things that they deal with all the time. And so... My stepfather, who was incredibly helpful and took on the co-executor role with me. And I can't remember mm -hmm. how that happened. There wasn't one appointed, but you can petition okay. be it. So we petitioned to do that together. And really he did the lion's share of it, particularly because he's local, lives in the same mm -hmm. town as her and I don't. Your stepfather, as opposed mm -hmm. to your biological dad, was there some sort of less emotional connection for him or is it more about his temperament that he stepped into I that think role it's more about his temperament in their relationship he's the bookkeeper he's got those skills and his mother died within the last five years before my mom and so in fact we used that attorney and he had been through this process got it. Um, and with a lot of similarities in terms of her physical space and he wasn't super close to her and i don't think there was a will so he was willing to do it and he was able to do it that's it's awesome. not that my father wouldn't have been, but I, maybe there was some emotional aspect, but I think it just had more to do with he had the skills mm -hmm. and the willingness. Yep. So we used this attorney and, and that was really helpful. And so you petition to be the executor and it doesn't have to be you. And in fact, I, what I believe I learned, though it's fuzzy now, is that even if someone named you as it, you don't have to accept. I don't think people realize right. that like because they don't have to get your permission right. to appoint you executor, but you also don't have to accept it. Let's pause on that because I don't think anybody knows that. And per yeah. my cartoon that I did end of April, when you do have a relationship with people, I think often the experience, if they do tell you, they're going to name you as like, oh, right. me? out of it's all the choices that you had. Oh, oh it's a pain in the ass. Say no. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I'm here to say, Jen is here to say that if you have an ambivalent relationship, if you just know you're not 
an organized person, somebody who has attention to detail, somebody whose life will allow. There are times that I said, literally, because that experience was drawn out over years, involved lawsuits, involved so much tension, emotion, and issues. There were times where I'm like, I think I'm about to lose my day job over this crap. So people do need to be realistic with themselves about whether it's something that's right for you to do emotionally and otherwise. So thank you for mentioning that. And I I don't know what the process, you know, obviously our, our process was petitioning to be the executors. I'm imagining just as easily you could petition to make somebody, I'm sure something your attorney would help you with. Exactly. And one other piece that you're reminding me that my elder care buddy said about this situation is all of us dutiful, dare I say women, who are like, of course, I will now start cleaning up the house and the blood on the floor and all these other things that I just feel obligated to do. He was like, especially when there's no will and no executor or whatever. He's like, you just walk away, man. He's like, they'll find you. If you're beneficiary, it's the state and the court's responsibility to track down those people, but you have no obligation to the situation. I was like, really? (laughs) Right. Right. I know. No filial duty. What? And this is a thing that I guess, and it's still hard to sort of feel it, but like, if that person is in debt or owes money, you don't have any obligation to pay their debts. So exactly. And and I think most people don't get that in fear. Yeah. They're like, Oh my God, they owe this money. I have to pay it. No, you don't. You can just walk away. It's amazing. (laughs) Their estate does. Right. So if you are trying to extract wealth from their estate, then the estate has to pay. Yeah. That's another really good point. So let's say it's the perfect case scenario and you have a huge pot of gold and you have a willing executrix. I love that word. And you have somebody who is fairly responsible, all of which was true with my parent figures, not the huge pot of gold part, but just that they were a a couple of means and they died not in debt. And still there are utilities to pay. There are funeral costs to pay if they haven't been prepaid. In their case, of course, they were so organized they were. But then even things like that with with a scenario that lasted years, some states, there's a lawyer fee, if you will, and the executor fee. Some pay executors, some don't. That's a whole nother piece of it. There might be literally nothing in it for you. You might not be a beneficiary and the state might not say that you get any sort of compensation for the work. If those things are involved and they're definitely involved for the estate lawyer, that money comes out of the pot. So there's quite a few pieces that have to be reconciled and removed from any of the final numbers before that starts getting distributed to beneficiaries. And then the other complicated piece of it is the more subjective elements, like maybe you have to sell a house and how long does that take? And I think the only children in this sense are potentially the luckiest if there's no other players trying to be involved in the mix because you're not debating with yourself the value of a house and what you should finally sell it for. So case in point, my father figure had pre-arranged to sell his house to the couple who once he died would assume it and live in it to this day. And that was both spectacular and amazing and helpful for me and potentially provocative for the beneficiaries. It could go on forever, but all fantastic points. Yep. And she didn't have a will, but I mean, I presume you could spell that out like, hey, this is the beneficiary and they should get this compensation. I think people yes. sometimes yes. do that. And then the other logistical tip is that if you are planning to go through the process, if you don't walk away, 
and you're trying to extract some wealth, I'll call it, <laughs> which is a funny word to apply to not that much, but it may or may not work out that the estate directly pays it. So anything that you pay personally, you want to keep receipts because yes. if you're not the beneficiary, even if you're not getting compensated, you can certainly submit those receipts. In my case, being the beneficiary, I kept the receipts, but it sort of was a, a null point because in the end, whatever was left after we paid the attorney, after we paid the fees associated with the memorial service, with the burial, with I'll go into this, but I had to borrow money to sell her house. So after everything's paid back, it all came to me. So it was kind of irrelevant. Yep. All fantastic points. And I'll fill in the color on the piece that you referenced, which was in my scenario, I was farming out the event help, if you will, to my sister, who is a fantastic cook. And so in both scenarios, because my father figure had chosen to do a prepaid funeral for his wife, as they both planned for themselves. And then a year later, he did a memorial remembrance. We promised him, basically, he will do the same for you. So we had four events, um, two of which I was heavily involved. And I think actually we helped with hers. But the point being that after he was gone, my sister would go by the food, the alcohol, whatever it was, she would need to keep the receipts. I would have to submit it. So it is, it's like a business for a while. Yeah. We are trying to account for every output and there are certain elements which can include hotels for, for family members and things like that, that can be accounted for in what can be covered. So this is why I say on my website, and then you get to grieve. <laughs> Presumably you're super upset or having some sort of emotions in the middle of all of this tactical bullshit we're talking about but it is just worth knowing these pieces so that you can track it. So after the fact, you're not like, ugh, in that hot mess of an emotional moment, I'm, yeah. I'm now out $3,000 for things I paid for, for the memorial. Yeah. And I, a lot of people I've talked to you sort of do it the reverse. So like, it's so busy in that first same month of figuring out the arrangements and dealing with their physical space. I mean, this is assuming that it's a, somebody who's died, who doesn't have a partner. I think it'd be really different, you know, for instance, in your case, if there's a living partner, particularly somebody who lives there, so you're not selling a house. You're also getting flooded with condolences. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like there's that I piece. still have boxes of letters and I have not only the boxes of condolences to us in our scenarios, but I have Herm's box of condolence letters when right. Fran died. Right. I want to put in a quick plug about what you just said. If there is a spouse or a legitimate person who could stay in the house. And that gets weird because just because you have your kid living with you doesn't mean they get to stay in the house. That's a whole nother, the dog just found the paper towel roll, a whole nother <laughs> layer of support that people don't realize is there, meaning spousal accommodation, spousal protection, spousal support, spend down. This happened yeah. to my uncle's widow. <laughs> Hold on, gotta get the paper towel. <laughs> So, so yeah, so this happened with my mom too, where we had to negotiate carefully given that it was my dad's needs. And at the end of the day, they were both out of the house when he died. So this wasn't a factor, but we did have to think through those pieces of who goes first and who's left. And what does that mean for how we protect? There were no assets, but right. how do we protect their, their ability to stay in the house? Yeah. And then this makes me think a little bit related, just like you need to save every receipt. Suddenly documentation is really important. If you're going to sell anything and in her case, if she had a car, maybe it was worth a thousand dollars. She had a computer. I think we think of assets as yachts and whatever. No, <laughs> these are like the things in your home that you have to document. You can't just sell it. You have to kind of have documentation of its worth. 
And then you have to have a receipt. And then some of that end of probate accounting is like, how much is, is it worth and how much did you make? And that's how they are deciding on what's taxable. Exactly. If you get a, if you get an appraisal that says the car is worth 1200 and you sell it for a thousand, you lost $200 for the beneficiaries and for the estate. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and, and that was confusing to me because I just thought, oh God, it's all income when we sell this house, but no, it, it has to do with how they appraise it and where it sells. And there's a whole game around what's the highest appraisal Value. you can get. And then you don't want to sell it above that because it'll be profit. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's for the tax purposes. Right. And then you're reminding me of the scenario again, that, that I ended up having to articulate to somebody is you know, I'm being cavalier, but there's a little bit of a free for all that happens at the end. Like, oh, okay. Who wants the car? And nobody can have that shit. It's not yeah. in your name. Yeah, it, exactly. It's now part of the estate. Yeah. And so in that scenario, I had a very sad story because my father figure's verbal wishes was that it right. should go to a friend who fully expected to be receiving it. In that scenario, a lot of lawyers say this, don't put down all the possessions you want to give away in paper, like the bracelet and the ring and the car, right. because every time you want to change that or update it, you have to pay the lawyer right yeah. money to do that. The flip side of that is if your lawyer convinces you not to do it and you have a whole bunch of verbal wish ideas about the property and where it's going to go and it's not written down. And yeah. you have beneficiaries who have their own ideas, then yeah. you have no control over it whatsoever. Right. So I had to put a car in storage for years while the lawsuits went on. And we had to decide who was going to get what. The person who thought they were getting it was told, right, by the guy who wanted to give it to him that he was getting it. When it had to go out and buy his own car. And I call this a sad story because they lived on 12 acres. They had a lot of critters. And so there was clearly a lot of lucky mice who got used to sleeping on the exhaust pipe or whatever oh, to keep no. warm. and we had this one panicky moment of where was the second key who had the second key and we need to get it to the beneficiaries because I had to meet the moving truck to bring it to the state the car was finally going to and I was feeling all the way around in the car and I found a little dead mouse because he'd been like vacuum sealed into this airtight storage space with yeah. food or water and I was so sad <laughs> I think it's a good point that, I mean, I didn't experience this because I was the only beneficiary. She had siblings and, you know, and nieces and nephews, but no other children, no spouse. I think that we are used to thinking like, oh, people are squabbling over money. And it's important to remember that what they're squabbling over is emotional. The object or the money is standing in place because people who have nothing squabble over the ashes, right? It's coming from this deep emotional place, even if it's a physical financial asset. Very very well said. Yes. And I am here to tell you all that the Swedish Art of Death Cleaning book is fabulous for saying stuff like that. Don't leave the bracelet to cause a debate between your two daughters when you die. Pull them into your room and say, who wants it? Yeah. <laughs> and why? And then give that shit away now. Yeah. Because, yeah. yes, you cannot control for the way people react because yeah. it's some deep seated psychological, emotional moment Stuff. for them. Yeah. Okay. Wow. This so, is, we're going to do this in two parts here. Yeah. So probate, she had taken out a reverse mortgage on her home, which I don't know a ton about it, but essentially they're kind of predatory loan products. She owned her house outright, but you can extract money from it. It's almost like it goes on a credit card. Like you have this line of credit that you're drawing against your house, but instead of taking out a second mortgage where you have that 
money and then you pay a mortgage each month as if you had repurchased your house, you don't pay anything. And the deal is that upon your death, there's a very limited window in which your heirs can sell the home or they seize it and sell it. And oh, wow. Supposedly, they then owe the beneficiary the profit, but they're not incentivized to pay it to you at a profit. So they can like whatever you owe them, which compounds, you know, crazily, they recoup that and then you get the rest. So on the one hand, it's a terrible practice and it's often older people or victims to this Mm -hmm. situation. On the other hand, it let her live on her terms. As we've covered, she was very independent. She didn't want help. So she was able to make it that way. And I never thought that I was going to get something from her. So it was sort of like, okay. And I knew when she took that mortgage, I just sort of presumed, well, the house is gone, you know? (laughs) And I was very lucky and not everybody is in this position. I thought about just walking away because the timeline was so crazy and considering the state that her house was in, but that was also a factor. Like if I sell it as is, what am I even going to get for it? Mm -hmm. But I was very lucky to be able to borrow what I needed to pay off the loan, take the house back and then sell it. I was aiming to sell it before the deadline and then Mm -hmm. was able to buy it, but we still sold it fairly quickly. And with my parents' help were local and doers really cleaned it out and rehabbed it to a point that we were able to sell it. That's amazing because by comparison, you know, I went through this because I was at a distance and because I didn't have the opportunity or even desire, quite frankly, to buy the whole house, sit on it, fix it up. The second I knew we were doing what we were doing, I picked up a phone and said, find me a flipper to the local realtor. And so the flip side of that is depending on your personality and the people involved, any beneficiaries, people could second guess whether you got your value's worth. My dad would have dropped it on the spot if he knew what I had sold that house for, but multiple years later, I have the benefit of knowing that was precisely what we should have sold it for. It sat on the market. It ended up just getting rented. That person finally chose to get, I'm actually thrilled with the family that ended up there. It's a happy ending in that sense, but what would have felt like we walked away from so much money, the amount of money in Mm, me not having to go three hours away every weekend for months, if not years was more than worth it. Yeah. So interesting to hear the other side of that, Jen. Totally. And we're not talking about extreme amounts here. (laughs) No, exactly. But especially if you have this sense of obligation for me, I didn't feel like I could just walk away even just from responsibility (laughs) to the next people. It was a physically kind of a disaster and a lifetime's worth of stuff and accumulating stuff over the time that she was not able to, to properly clean and sort of, we had a moving day and I had maybe a dozen friends came and we rented a dumpster and we just hauled and hauled and hauled and hauled stuff and to get sort of down to the bare bones. And there was very little, I went in thinking we would sort of salvage some of her stuff, but there was really not a lot that was salvageable. Mm -hmm. Um, We took out the computer, which was in good shape. And I sold that and we identified a few things to sell in that regard. In some ways it's easy have to make a huge amount of decisions because of the way that she was storing her things, this hurting thing. Like I kind of had to go through every drawer, right? (laughs) Because like I said, the title of the car was under some oatmeal packets who would have thought, (laughs) (laughs) but I needed that title to sell the car (laughs) and And family photos and, you know, things like that were sort of mixed in with, with old phone bills. And so there was a certain amount of like, you could certainly walk away and just torch it, but we chose to, to go through it. 
these are the moments where I feel like good friends realize why they're good friends. Because <laughs> even if we didn't have reason to sit around talking about the oatmeal packet and the car title, I have so much empathy, understanding, experience with these scenarios. My parents' situation, very, very similar. No yeah. assets, nothing to get. There's very little we took from the house. Yeah. Which doesn't mean that I don't have attachment to some of the things we did have, but I have boxes and boxes of binders that I took just to show my son once, just so he knows what his grandparents look like, yeah. all these things that my dad put together in this sort of obsessive way, they reek. Everything that was in my parents' house either reeked of secondhand smoke because they were chain smokers or mold. Uh -huh. So not only of the things like the vintage classic books that I would have been very thrilled to take and pass down, all in the dumpster. Yeah. Nothing could be saved. Yeah. And, and that is a very different experience. I'm, I'm going to talk to friends in the future who have it's bizarre to think of this as a problem who have parents who have a house with a guest wing right. and they have more beautiful antique jewelry stuff so they yeah. have the opposite problem what do you keep who does it go to how do you start yeah. cleaning out a house like that when they're still alive and able and cognitively able to decide yeah. what the value of everything is even with her she was a journalist and there were boxes and boxes and boxes of clippings and I have them all. And it's not like these are prize winning pieces. You know? It's like so-and-so around the corner has a cat. <laughs> these are not can I, can I historical items. <laughs> I'm going to liberate you in this moment, Jen, because you are the child that I decided to spare because I too had all my writing. My parents kept all my writing from elementary school, middle school, high school, college. And then I had all my clippings, same thing, literally working with your mom about the Vermont cat next door. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you now, that was one of the best things I did for myself and my child a couple months ago was I torched that shit like gone yeah. because I recognize why she held on to it. In part, it's a, it's a resume for a writer. And I found it was bringing me down hard, never mind my child, because it. it's meaningless <laughs> shit, right? The stories, to your point, it's not a Nobel Prize winning crap. Yeah. But that heartstring sense of obligation that they did this and this is part of their in your mom's case her vocation and yeah. what do I do with it? Let it go. <laughs> Throw it away. You start to understand how you get there. That's my intention. And then I moved since I took yeah. this stuff on, I moved it. It was just as easy to put the box in the basement. And this is how it happens. <laughs> <laughs> Slippery slope, my friend. Yeah. happened so we sold the house she had not left very explicit instructions about celebration she was like oh I just don't want a big brouhaha you know I want it to be nothing but I felt certainly some obligation to her family she has living siblings and nieces and nephews she wasn't super close to them I don't think but you know somewhat she had family that that was not me and she had a lot of friends you know she'd been living in that community for 40 something years and she she knew a lot of people and so you know I just decided to try to do something that honored her wishes but that gave people a place to kind of come together and so I had a, a sort of a memorial service it was pretty low-key you were there like there were some speeches and there was a slideshow but it was mostly like a gathering with snacks fairly <laughs> mm -hmm. low-key and I, I think that was helpful. We didn't do it right after she died. I think that helped it feel like less of a less of a production as well. And I think it was useful to people like a bunch of her family traveled there for it. And I had forgotten this piece of like, 
what a funeral means to a family is like just the tiniest bit of it is about the person who died. Really, it's like a family reunion, you know? Right. I appreciate you saying that because I had a third party removed experience of what you were going through. In interviews like this, I can't overstate what it was like for Jenny just because I happened to be there. And yet still, the out-of-body experience for, for me was watching you have an out-of-body experience in the way you just described, which was you were in wicked event planning mode in a great way. Like that, those are your skills. That's what you bring to the table. It was adorable for me to just lean against a wall and watch you direct people in the way that uh-huh. you've done for all these huge events that you have planned in your professional life. And your then partner, now husband was there. So I could watch the two of you engage with each other and your new normal. And then I knew your parents and, and actually I think maybe one or two friends. And then there was this weird who's who of local journalists uh-huh. weird for me because I was like I know some of you and I think you know me but you don't know me anymore but anyway so but mostly to your point what it was about was you putting on a play for all the other people who needed this moment whether they were neighbors or former co-workers or especially lightly estranged and extended family and you were pulling the puppet strings so they could have their moment and their cheese and crackers and write their narcissistic poems about <laughs> your <Yeah>. mom, <laughs> which I totally relate to. And then your photos going through in the theater where people could, so it was this beautifully organized moment where it was in a gorgeous setting. And then there was this intimate theater space you could ebb and flow in and out of to see pictures of your mom over time and you and your parents, and then come back to the main space and people could give speeches and it was lovely. It was everything I think your mom never asked for that she would have wanted. I think everybody got to engage in their comfort zone. One of my favorite visuals that just popped in my head was your husband is a, is a professional musician. So he had just, I think he'd come off the road and then was maybe going back on the road. So there was this adorable change of clothes next to his guitar in the theater. So he yeah. like <laughs> turned into memorial husband guy and then he was going to go back to be a musician husband guy. So I guess I'll pause there and say, is that what it was for you? You knew you needed to do it for everybody else and you did it really well. I think that's true. And, you know, in fact, I was like, yikes, how am I going to deal with it? Cause you know, that people like they don't know the ins and outs of your relationship for the most part. So there's all this outpouring of support and I know it must be so, yeah, (laughs) I know how hard this is. (laughs) And I was like, how do I respond? And it's sort of the same series of questions I'd had to ask myself about how do you support someone you're estranged from? It's like, how do you grieve someone you're estranged from? Yeah. You know, and publicly and then, right. And how do you respond to public support? (laughs) And And you've got this classic, Jenny poker face that I feel <laughs> serves you very well in those moments where I could look at you across the room nodding and you know putting your hand on your chest and mm-hmm, mm-hmm, knowing that inside you're like yeah yeah <laughs> you don't really know but you know you've always been a very gracious person you meet people in the moment that they are so I watched you let them do what they felt they needed to do for you and for themselves and then my next favorite moment was because I was on the in crowd. I felt like a cool kid that day. And I got invited <laughs> back to your parents' house. It was the best mix of a few precious moments with your parents and your best friend and your husband and the cats <laughs> before the extended relatives came over, which again is the right thing to do and what we all do, but completely changes the dynamic. <laughs> yeah. It, it's like 
that reprieve after a wedding where you go sneak into the back and you have a shot of tequila together and then the event goes on yeah and you put your poker face back on and I think all the rest of us bat out pretty quickly after that and we're like good luck with your family yeah <laughs> your family that you sort of barely know <laughs> yeah so yeah. How, how is the rest of that for you I mean, you know, as you're describing, like, it's a little strange, you know, mostly they kind of circled up. And I know that this is my go to anyhow, it's like, I got to make sure everybody had drinks and make sure the snacks were full, <laughs> you know, like the things that I do at any party. <laughs> yeah, but you, you are a very good party girl. Yeah, I do things. think that one thing that I take out of this and sort of have tried to take forward in my life is just trying to be cautious about language, you know, mm. that it's so tempting to be like, I know how you feel. I know mm. this is so hard. It's so tragic. And just how damaging that can be to other people to step in and assume, you know, how they feel. <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, dig into the assumptions, make an ass out of you and me moment. So in my current neighborhood, it just so happens in this last week, a bunch of us are going through family stuff, like completely yeah right? Just out of the blue. And yeah. so we're all texting each other like, oh, this person, oh, that person. And one person jumped on a thread expressing concern for a, a peer whose father is dying. And immediately, I think because of my experiences to your point, I didn't go to, oh, I'm so sad. I hope he gets better and recovers. I went yeah. to somebody else and was like, what's the context? <laughs> because I, I don't know if it's a sad thing that yeah. he's dying. I don't know what their relationship is. So I do think that's a huge piece of advice for anybody. And I do offer some things on my site when you're helping other people grieve, don't make assumptions. That's why I have my irreverent brand. Death is not always a sad thing and it's not right. always the worst outcome and end, end of life can be beautiful as well as tough. So I definitely appreciate people's reactions vary. I mean, there's that whole thing we know that maybe may or may not have been debunked about, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and the stages of grief. Like Mm. sometimes even when you're close, you're at, you feel angry or you feel cheated. It's not one thing and it's not on a particular timeline and it changes. Exactly. Yeah. And I think they say the person you have the most ambivalent relationship with is often the hardest death because you haven't reconciled in, Mm -hmm. in, before it happens, how you feel about it, or maybe you haven't individuated or you're in master, whatever those psych terms are, we can throw out around with my dad's situation. He was such a tough nut and we would come to blows, but like come to blows and clear the air. Like we knew exactly where he stood with each other. So the second he died, I haven't missed him a day since. And it's not because I didn't think he was a good father or didn't care for him, but he was so broken and he was so incapable of offering the best parts of himself. And he so often led with the worst, most disruptive, most mm, toxic. Like I literally had to block him from being able to email me at work crap that with his death, it was just a sense of peace. Cause I'm like, awesome. Now I can just remember the good parts for you dad. <laughs> now I can just re- relax into what it was in between those moments or what it was before he got to that stage. Yeah. So any other words of wisdom like that, just as as you were reconciling yourself to, as you say, in a strange relationship that you you look back on now. Well, I mean, this is particular to this moment in history. One is this is probably true no matter what your relationship is. The processing goes on wherever you're at. It's not like, oh, she's dead and I never think about her. You know, it continues on. She's just not there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And you don't have that pesky problem. I had the impulse of my parent figures to be like, oh, I got to call them. Like my weekly call. Right. 
but you, you only talked to her every three months. So. Yeah. I mean, it did, <laughs> it did come up in that way the first Christmas where I usually had spent with her. It's strange. Those anniversaries are strange and Mother's Day is coming up and I see everybody talking about Mother's Day and it feels a little strange, but so do a lot of things, especially this year, right. but I definitely had some relief this particular moment in history of COVID. If she would have been so vulnerable right. and caring for her would have been so complicated or getting her the support she needed. I know we've talked a lot about somehow by hook and crook and duct tape where we've been, we've been okay, mm-hmm. but some of it was at certain moments having the resources. And we know that not everybody had the resources to limit their interaction with other people that they had to exactly. go to work, and, you know, and and with her limited resources and my, my parents who are nearby, but are also older and vulnerable, not able to lend the same support, I think that mm-hmm. she was getting. So yeah, a lot of relief. Okay. This would have been really difficult for her. On the other hand, as an introvert, she might've been like, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> right. I just get to stay <laughs> home. <laughs> That's good point. Jen can't even come see me anymore. This yeah. been talking for a long time i really am so sorry for your sound person to have to like wait through all of it <laughs> i will i uh, will pause for a sec so jen a i thank you for your time because usually they you know i chat and then it takes maybe an hour but there's so much good shit here to offer but i might just do it in two parts because it's sure, that good sure, so yeah anyway so you would think it would, oh well this is what i have to do in the next situation so skip to the end of the end of shit happened even though it's never over. But now I'm looking to, okay, what should I be doing? What would be helpful with what I know in regards to the relationship with my parents who are aging? They're in way better shape than my mother was, but it turns out in some ways not to help at all because they're different people and it's a different relationship. (laughs) Oh, damn it. (laughs) Damn it. So just giving yourself some, like always be a beginner, I guess. Well, that's very Zen of you, Jen. And I didn't sit around thinking thinking that I would express that for you or on your behalf or that that's my opinion of it. But when I knew I wanted to interview you and I talk about you having gone through the middle and the end and now facing the start, I do think of it as separate pieces to your point, because you never had the start with your mom. You have a good relationship with these people. You have different sentiments about their failing and dying process. You have the ability to have the conversation and all that. So in that sense, precisely, you have absolutely no practice to go through what you're now going through with them. Right. And the other thing I thought of is I have a much closer and more communicative relationship with my father and his husband. So we've had parts of this conversation. And what I'm finding is that they don't sub in for having it and having a framework where you're going to save that information. We've had parts, but like I somehow, and maybe this, there's some deep emotional thing of like, I don't remember exactly what (laughs) maybe I should write it down. Right. And and let's play with that a little bit because um, in my Alyssa podcast, she and my college friends, when we talked in the fall, were very much like, there's got to be a starter kit. I need to know what these terms are. I just need the dictionary and education. In the back of my mind, I was like, oh, it's out there waiting for you. And I actually went down the wormhole. Maybe I create my own version of that. And I kept resisting in part because I'm like, I don't think it's the creation of this stuff that's needed. I think it's trying to get to people ahead of these moments to make them aware so they don't have to reinvent the wheel. So my point is, this is one of those moments where I can do like I did with Alyssa, where she reached out to me. She said, I know your website's not live yet, but where do I put all the stuff? And I was like, well, there's an electronic version over here. And there's a paper version over here and you can use either. And when I followed up with her and was like, so which did you use? She was like, yeah, neither. <laughs> yeah. And to be 
to be fair, it was because her parents were super organized and wrote it all down. But by her own account, she was like, it ended up being the conversation was, was the most important part for her moment. That said, I'm assuming you've got rattling around the back in your head. What I also experienced is like, I, I really need the passwords. <laughs> like if I write down nothing else. <laughs> you need the passwords. <laughs> need the passwords. Can you, can you actually have a will? Because we learned that lesson. So yeah. will, passwords, we're good, right? Yeah. I mean, my in my father's case, his husband is significantly younger, like 10 years younger or something. Mm-hmm. And I definitely rely on that, which I have learned is a bad idea, but I sort of assume... <laughs> that he will fail or die sooner and that there's some yeah. support there. And it might be true. <laughs> be true. Yeah. Uh, tune in for our next podcast. Yeah. What happens when you rely on the younger spouse? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this year has been strange. In some way, there's all this time, but it, for my dad, who's been very anxious about COVID, there's also this sense of everything feels up in the air. Like, I don't know what's happening. What made sense a year ago might not make sense anymore. I always hear people talk about this with regards to your will. Like it's not a one-time document. It should change because the circumstances change. So for instance, if I had a will that my mother was in, it would no longer be valid. She's not alive. So we don't think about that, that like, it might not be a one-time conversation. For sure. That's really well said. And and Alyssa, that was her own conclusion that I would have prompted her on, which was like, this was a good starter and we will keep revisiting it. Just for folks, collective education, most wills and paperwork, beneficiary forms, whatever, they do have a backup (laughs) for that very reason. So if Jen's mom's not alive, then who does it go to next? Again, with the the intent of letting Jen express rather than the courts express. But I think the other side of that coin is, is my husband and I, went down that wormhole to a degree that our our lawyer guy was like oh for crying out loud you do not need to name who's going to get the deaf dog and we care about it though (laughs) (laughs) so we went down 25 different levels and that was his point he's like things are going to constantly change and if you codify it to this degree your will is going to become irrelevant quickly Yeah. yeah and cumbersome for sure very cumbersome so yes, it's the part that makes it feel a little hard because it's hard enough to have the conversation one time, never mind over and over again. Keep it simple. So it doesn't feel like a, a big deal to re-engage and then just re-engage as you yeah. need to over time. It's hard. So with my father, there's a binder somewhere and it and it gives me some freedom to not worry about it. I know that I can get the information. Sure. But when I've asked him sort of about what he wants to have happen to his body, he's like, oh, I can't think about that. You know, it's basically like you do whatever you want. And there is something about being the person left behind. That's really hard. Like right. having somebody tell you what, what to do is really helpful. In that yeah, <laughs> but I get it. It's so against our natures to think about our bodies as bodies, as opposed to us. I took this class a while ago. It was about um, massage and hospice care. This woman, Irene Smith, who just died. She was the inventor of massage for hospice. And she got her start in the eighties caring for people with AIDS when nobody would touch them kind of spearheaded this moment. And then it, it expanded more widely to hospice. And, and a part of that course, you had to dive into your own thoughts about your own death. You had to write your own obituary. This is what I want to have happen to my body. This is what I want the celebration to be like. She felt that to do this work, you had to get comfortable with mortality. Yeah, <laughs> you know? no. I think that's a lot of what stops people from doing the work. You know, It's so well said. I appreciate that you sent that to me. What I, what I feel is so ironic about the reason that people often say you decide is because 
they don't know how to face it. They don't want to face it. It's, it's selfish. They get to do whatever they want to do. And then the person left behind is like, oh, and even, even though I think the person who's abdicating thinks it's like, well, who cares then? I'm gone. The person left behind cares deeply. Ellen Goodman, a journalist who, who worked for the Boston Globe, started the Conversation Project. That is the entire tenant of that site in that movement is when her mom had Alzheimer's and Ellen Goodman couldn't ask her, what do you want? And the overwhelming emotions that came with having to make those decisions for somebody. I think people just don't recognize that it is so much kinder to just decide. In my case, it goes a little bit the other way because we talked my mom at least into cremation and then just randomly in passing, she said, oh, well, I'm still thinking about the body donation thing. And I was like, what? I was like, you have never, like my dad did it. It was amazing. And we donated our dog's body because it was that amazing. But I was like, mom, you have never once mentioned this. Is this something you're actually seriously considering? And she always gets cagey where she thinks she's supposed to do something. So she acts as if she's thinking about it, but she's not. So then I was like, I can get the form right now and let's sign in. By the way, it'll make it free for me, which is great because they pick up all the costs and they pick up the body. And then she immediately started backpedaling like wait 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 wait. yeah and this goes into like super deep territory we don't know what happens or does not so we we have all these sort of like rituals around what we think it's about or we used to i can see how if you had a strong religious practice there's some ways that that's easy it just says what to do exactly (laughs) yeah when i first started creating my website i had to be like asterisk this is all outside of the realm of people who just do what their religion tells them to do yeah. meaning that's what they believe in and it makes yeah. it super easy yeah. for the rest of us who are like somewhere on the spectrum of atheism agnosticism or lapsed somethingism yeah. <laughs> it lends itself to if anything is possible what's right. the right thing to do somebody was saying this recently is that for lack of rituals as our, our, our american mutt amalgamated culture it makes it really, really hard because there's nothing that other people know to do for you or you choose to do for yourself and that the family comes together for you have to make it up for every given moment. And that's exhausting. Yeah, it is. I think what you're doing is amazing to consolidate resources. You learn the little pieces you learn, but to to be able to be like, oh, look, here's about what to do with burials. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And thank you for saying that. In some instances, I've I've had people say, I'm looking for this. I'm like, did you not see it when you were on that page? And they're like, no, because I just look at the pictures. (laughs) And in some instances, I'm hearing that it's skewing to an even younger crowd than I would have expected who are at the very, very start with, with parents newly diagnosed with Alzheimer's and so they're using it maybe even just emotion as an emotional prop for what's coming next versus a tactical support but why I find it so easy to gather all these resources is because it's it's almost embarrassing how many there are and how many different brands and flavors and and contexts and in my experience the ones that have the best content are the worst design (laughs) (laughs) or the most hidden so for me, it's just very cathartic to just try to lightly organize this, all this crap in right. a way that was intuitive to what I personally went through or what I yeah. hear other people going through. And I just like looking at books and stuff all day long. <laughs> it's good. No, this is good. And, it, and it's good to, you know, like just getting to have this conversation. I mean, this is definitely like the most in-depth conversation <laughs> I've had about this, <laughs> um, which is really helpful. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. And then, and Carolyn too, you probably heard the little outtake where she's like, you're making me have thoughts. <laughs> and that's the point. I am a trained counselor, but I'm not hanging on a shingle. 
but I'm like, I, I'm doing something here. People are soliciting me for something and they're calling me and I'm unlocking something. So the best I can think of it is I'm offering a shortcutting service. <laughs> Rather than you going through this in the moment, in a crappy way, like many of us had to do, you and me both, don't just have the conversation with the elders, have the conversations with your peers. Oh, yeah. I think that's so important because it's like this taboo thing. And when you don't talk about it, then you can't get support. And it's hard to, that's part of why it's hard to find resources. It's probably easier now that we all have Google, but it's like a thing that people don't know how to ask about. Yeah. Well said, because in the moment that it's happening, all you're doing is facing somebody who's got a look on their face that says, I'm going through some serious shit and I don't right. have the capacity. And we're afraid to, to ask it. We're afraid to say the wrong thing. You yeah, know? Exactly. Yeah. Well, Jenny, we've been at a Mexican restaurant for I a know, just hours. Minus the margaritas. I mean, we did start talking at nine in the morning, so that would have been. true. Next time we should reschedule this for the cocktail hour. <laughs> I know. Are you still going? Your turn. Oh, okay. Let's see. Follow my monthly podcast for free on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your irreverent radio. In between, you can find support, education, and hundreds of resources on my website, thisisgettingold.com. Just add some dashes. Sign up for my newsletter to receive my latest insights, anecdotes, audio, and ever-growing list of shit. Performing my theme music is my mom and my son. My audio producer is Michelle Rado of Flying Pig Audio. My dog is sniffing as I'm talking, and I am irreverent Rachel leaving you with some reminiscing about Jen's online wedding, for which I had the great honor of being the Zoom DJ. Now, go embrace your own irreverence. Yay, I got it. So I'm fully vaxxed. Peter's getting his second shot today. Tomorrow is our anniversary. It's the one-year anniversary of the Zoom wedding. Holy f- are you kidding me? Isn't that crazy? Doesn't it seem like yesterday? Yes. And sort of joking, like, what are you doing for your anniversary? You're like, Peter's going to be in bed with flu-like symptoms. <laughs> 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 well, I have to tell you, that is a gift that keeps on giving because everybody's like, you did what? Yeah. Like, yeah, I did. You were right. I was like, oh my God, who can stay on Zoom for more than an hour? And we had to kick people off. I mean, <laughs> it's strong, but. Yeah. You were insisting that it was going to be like this 45 minute event. Oh, I was yeah. like, girlfriend, you don't even know. <laughs> it was half and half because like about half the people were like, okay, I'm out. Yeah. But what was cute about it? So even they lingered more than we could have predicted yeah. and then every single person that bowed out early came through my to say like, thank you and yes it so was sweet. the sweetest thing they came back to the lobby and they're like this was a wonderful event it was yeah. it was perfect mm-hmm.